welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. This is a podcast where we talk about board games. Surprise, surprise. I love how you say welcome back with the implication that someone is just listening to all our episodes. They're binging them back to well, back to back. Well, if they don't, they better get on it. Pitter patter. So, I don't know. I, I was looking at some Kickstarters, Mark, and an interesting predicament came into my mind or a situation that might arise. There's these... Uh, people, let's say people that do reviews or previews of Kickstarters and they have videos up on the Kickstarter page and they're already there. Now let's say they're already up and the company has decided to put up a derogatory Kickstarter stretch goal. And now that these people are sort of tied to this project and, and that just leads to an interesting situation that might come up. That's all I have to say. It's tough when your editorial standards are tied to private companies. Whenever you, whenever you accept these commissions, you're effectively lending your imprimatur to these enterprises, and you have no control over what you do after you've accepted the commission. So sometimes due diligence is important, which is a good thing why we're sufficiently irrelevant that nobody bothers to ask us to do those things, not that we do them if asked. Also true. They can't fire us, we quit. All right. I know we want to get right into board games, but I also want to... This is board game related. I want to start giving getting my games sent out. So I'm just going to announce it on here and this will force me to get this going. So my idea as it stands now is to put them all up on Board Game Geek as an auction with them starting at $0 and then have the listeners bid on them instead of like doing some sort of, you know, like randomly pick. I have no idea. This is my idea so far. So if anyone out there has a better idea, send it to me. But as it stands, this is what it's going to go on. That being said... Last week, we talked about Tammany Hall. Yes. Mark, what about Tammany Hall? This is a very charitable we you're doing here, Walker. I stepped in it, but good. I made a very, very significant rules error. Now, I posted a retraction on both Twitter and Facebook, for the, but for those who are unaware, some of the problems that I was having with the game were a function of my uh, mistaken rules interpretation. Interpretation is too generous. I just, I just made up a rule that didn't exist. Well, how dare you, Mark, after you read, like, you know, Six different rule sets every week get a rule wrong. That's, you know, not acceptable. Uh, look, uh, it's an unfortunate error. The error that I made was believing that leftover influence chips, the things that you bid to win elections, are with points at the end of the game. They're only worth a couple of bonus points if you have the most of them, but basically they're not worth nearly as much as I thought they were. So elections are less costly, conflicts are less catastrophic, etc., etc. So I've committed to retrying the game with the proper rule set. I haven't been able to do so this week yet. I will as soon as I possibly can, and I will issue a more uh, complete, set of impressions at that time. I would like to sincerely apologize to anyone who has been uh, misled by my errant interpretations, including the designer and the publishers of the game, but hopefully more accurate Tammany Hall impressions to follow. Well, there you go. We're not perfect. Raids are serious business and fire still burns. On with the show. This is a podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year. Then we're going to talk about some games that we played last week. We're going to talk about the news, board gaming news, and why it really doesn't matter. Then we have a topic this week. No feature game because of the summer schedule. And the topic this week is second chances, i.e. why do we give certain board games a second chance if we hated it the first time or if it didn't click? Why would we go back to it or what? needs to happen for us to go back to a game a second time. Oh, I have failed to prepare for this topic. I thought that Second Chances was a reference to me and that Harry, give me, you were giving me one more chance to get things right. After screwing Tammany Hall up so badly? Yes. I agree, this is your second chance. So, Crisis at Steamfall. This is a 
tough one for me to talk about just because we got, it was sort of a preview copy we had. Yes. I haven't even seen, I'm, I'm assuming that it was a Kickstarter. The Kickstarter went out to backers. We have, we have our copy. We have a retail copy we sent to us from copy. the publishers and I intend to get it to the table in this coming week. Haven't had a chance yet. It looks very similar to how we reviewed it. We, although sometimes in this case, the devil's in the details and very appropriately given that our topic this week is about second chances. I can be optimistic, especially since Tom Stasiak and Beautiful Disaster, who are the people who put out Crisis Steamfall, are responsible for the, I think, brilliant assault on Doomrock, which was truly genre-defying in a number of ways and very, very clever and fun and engaging. And Crisis at Steamfall showed some promise, and there were things about it that we liked, but ultimately we felt that it was a little bit overwrought, too much downtime, and at the end of the day, those promising ideas really didn't manifest itself into uh, the game experience that it could have been. And... On the face of it, it is tough to tell how much has been changed since the preview copy into the developed copy, because again, it's a lot about how these cards work and how the cards interact and the specific details about what's going on in the board. So I'm going to be putting it through its paces in the coming week, and I expect to come up with another update next week. Yeah, that being said, I, I, I remember some of the components, but I really don't remember any of the gameplay. So that's that's something to be said that it really didn't It'll be anything. a new game for you, Walker. And I have, have not been wanting to play it. So both of those things, not... Not nothing, not memorable, and not wanting to play it. But I will, like you said, give it another try because you know I'd like to see the retail copy and how it turned out at the end. That is Crisis at Steamfall. That's the game we reviewed a year ago, roughly. Now on to the games that we played this week. Going to start off with a minor update on just one, the party game that I can't stop talking about, mainly because everyone in our local group wants to play it two or three times back to back. This is the co-op word game where you're trying to clue people in, and I encountered a couple of clues that really stood out to me as being incredibly difficult. A lot of the things that you're trying to clue people into are relatively straightforward. Words like mouse, or rock, or apple, things like that. But I encountered a couple that really threw me for a loop. One of them was gothic. I didn't really know how... I, I ended up... The, the clue I ended up going with, I wasn't the person guessing. The person guessing didn't have a, a shot. They, they had no conception of where we were going. And this was with a table full of clues. We typically, for what it's worth, when we're playing just one, we play very, very fast and loose, very often in excess of the published player count. We just let people keep showing up, and we don't really care too much about balance, because, again, it's it's a co-op game. You say you have fun? How dare you? Yeah. And the components run out, but all you need is the ability to just write down something to show to people. So, effectively, what with phones or just scraps of paper, you could play to an unlimited number. And, it, and we've, ha- we've been having a blast. Anyhow, so the we had, a, we had a full set of clues, something like seven or eight different clues for Gothic, and all of them were reasonably good clues. But again, tough to tough to guess. So there was a clue like Parliament. There was a clue because Parliaments are often in the Gothic architectural style. One of them was Cathedral. My clue was American, as an American Gothic, that famous painting. But at the end of the day, it was just it was just too much of a long shot. Another clue that didn't really go very well was Grotto which is awfully specific. Now, first of all, I'll admit that I regard it as a difficult clue because I, I, I'm still not 100% sure that I know what a grotto is, to be honest. I, I, when it comes to nature and stuff like that, I'm not super up on things. I'm pretty ignorant. It's, it's simple, Mark. One word. Ambush. <laughs> but you can ambush from any number. Th- you can ambush no. from a ditch. No. You can ambush from... Oh, no? no? No, just a grotto. Just a grotto? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I, I should have I should have given ambush as a clue. I my clue was bad, but even if my clue was good, I mean because near as I can tell, cave and grotto are more or less the same. So I guess if somebody gave cave as a clue, you could guess that. that anyway, so those were two very hard clues, and we had uh, two two uh, very hard topics rather that we hadn't seen before. 
And it really goes to show that, again, when it comes to a co-op game, balance ain't no thing. Doesn't really matter too much. I, I do think that it's a good thing that not all the clues are like gothic and grotto and more of them are like rock and mouse because if it were just too hard to get any of them, then the game wouldn't be very much fun. But we're, ha- we're still having a blast with just one and uh, still haven't tried Llama again yet. Just a minor Llama update. It's called Llama because that's a German acronym for get rid of your negative points. That's what it, there's theme to the game. Yeah, chock full of themes. Chock full of, well, I, mine is still Rise of the Killer Cameras, so that's my themed there version of Llama. But anyhow, uh, so that was our, our ongoing experiences with the STJ nominees of this year, except no Werewords. Werewords deserves to, to, to die in a pit somewhere. Die in a fire. I got Isle of Sky to the table. It's an older game, older in our standards, I suppose, but a fantastic uh, intro game. Once again, introduced to a, play, uh, a person that doesn't play games very often, she loved it so much, we played it multiple times throughout the week. It's got a great catch-up mechanism, unfortunately, but still, like, for that type of game where you want people all to be having fun, it's great. You know, if you're behind, you know, if three people are ahead of you, then you're going to have a multiplier of three to a money bonus, and it's tile lane, you're building your little clan together, you're making little mountains, you're laughing at Billy for spending too much money. And then, if you want a, a lot of fun, like we did... You go to YouTube and check out my video review of Isle of Sky that I did years and years ago, <laughs> and you laugh very loud because I, I like much like these podcasts. I pretty well, you know, shot and edited the videos and then never watched them again. So this is like after four, three or four years of never seeing these, watching it again made me laugh out loud. They we were we were so, we were so young, we were yeah, so naive. It's true. Anyway, in Isle of Sky, you're doing this really cool bidding mechanism to, to purchase these tiles from other people and, and keeping the ones you want and hacking away ones you don't want. And there are four different victory conditions and they mix up every turn and they mix up every game as well. There's like this whole pile and you can turn them down like for new players, like in the first turn it's A and then B and then C and C and D. Anyway, you can turn the ones that don't aren't relevant for that turn for newer players. So it's like very straightforward and they're all sorts of different varying victory conditions and you build a cool little town making money love it that is isle of sky on the topic of older games i get to play upfront for the first time in several years upfront is an avalon hell classic from 1983 it is a bizarre card game even to this day and it does some things that other games just don't do the closest modern analog is probably combat commander they have very similar elements of hand management in terms of how to manage discards and so forth but upfront is it builds itself as the squad leader card game squad leader being the venerable hex encounter war game but that's not doing the game justice upfront is not even a squad based game it is a human based game every individual soldier is represented individually you divvy them up into some number of teams and broadly speaking your job is to go forth and grab territory in the face of withering machine gun fire at least if you play the way that i do and it does some really fascinating things and also has a famously incomprehensible rulebook I think I play upfront properly, but it's always one of those games where you can't be 100% sure, having taught myself. And I have, a, I have a lot of fun with Upfront. It's very much showing its age. It was bizarre even when it was released. It's been famously indecipherable ever since 1983. But it does some things that other games don't do. For one thing, the way that represents Fog of War, I really appreciate. Basically, terrain is abstracted away and relative position is abstracted away. Again, we really like games like that. I certainly do. And so you might move a squad up because you have a building card in your hand. And like, okay, these guys are going to take cover in this building. I'm going to take the risk. They're going to expose themselves. They're moving for this 
this round. I can't move them again. I can only do one action per turn with these guys. Then I might suffer a fire attack, but I'll be okay. But then on the next turn, my opponent has a stream or a marsh in their hand, which is not a good place to get stuck in the middle of machine gun fire, and they plop it down in front of your squad. So I thought I was headed towards some building that I saw in the distance, but oh wait, there was this swamp in the way, and now they're stuck there, and oh no... Corporal Peters is now panicked and uh, doesn't want to move anywhere and is pinned to the ground. So now you have to wonder, do I rally them? Do I move these guys? I try to start get the, getting these guys out of the marsh and leave Corporal Allen alone and uh, let uh, uh, Corporal Peters rather and let him die. It's it's a really it's it's really neat. It does a lot of things really well. However. It is far more complex than it needs to be, unsurprisingly, given its uh, heritage. And like most upfront players, I have never played past scenario A. Most upfront players have only ever played meeting engagement because the moment you start adding in yet more subsystems, upfront wanted, and this is kind of admirable in its craziness, to model man-to-man combat complete with things like encirclement and infiltration and hand-to-hand combat and flanking and things like that, and additionally wanted to model vehicles. All the way from AFVs on down and with a whole bunch of other tracked vehicles and wheeled vehicles and representing whether they were hauled down or whether you're attacking various uh, various side weak armor and things like that. And those rules elements I have never read <laughs> and I've never bothered to touch because it's a whole mess on top of what's already a complicated game. Anyhow, the person I played up front with is an old school tabletop wargamer. He plays things like... Uh, bolt action and flames of war and things like that. He didn't like the scale. He he found it very unusual to be representing individual men because to his conception, a squad can get pinned, but individual people can't get pinned. So he had a little bit of difficulty wrapping his head around that and the whole notion of, 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 of the range because the range is bonkers. Five is real close. Zero is far away. That's how range works in up front. Anyhow. I have a soft spot in up front, not purely based on nostalgia because I wasn't I wasn't a gamer when it was released. I only I only picked it up uh, 20 years after it was published more or less. No, not 20 years, more like 25 years after it was published. I still like up front on occasion. Like to dust out work work the brain, especially in a week when I've been getting rules wrong. I like to get a little bit of workout with the Don Greenwood rule book, and that was up front. No mention whatsoever of the tremendous controversies regarding its oh publication goodness, because that yeah. could be an entire pub- podcast in of itself. Okay. On to the next, Soul. We've got Soul to the table. It is Soul, Last Days of a Star. Soul, Last Days of a Car. <laughs> last Days of a Car. This is about yeah, bringing so your jalopy down to the uh, down your, to the junkyard and Soul, Last Days of a Lemon. No, <laughs> Soul, Last Days of a Star. It's a very interesting game. Is your uh, a bunch of races, I'm assuming, you know, and you're... Local. It's ambiguous. It's ambiguous, but, you know, all your stars are different, so I'm assuming, you know, it's different factions. Let's say Definitely. factions. Different factions. They're local, everyday star, giver of life, is going supernova, and they're trying to take as much energy from it as they can at the last minute so they can get away from it when it explodes. It is what I thought I went to write this down, but I'm going to say it's a no-luck tableau builder. In a way, you're like increasing the number of... A tableau with no ta- a tableau well, builder your, with no tableau? Well, you've got your movement, and then you've got your the buildings that you're putting in. You can build some infrastructure, yeah. sure, but not a tableau. Uh, like I said, I forgot to write down. Okay, I was going to throw it out there and have you like, you know, argue with me and you know, mission tell, accomplished. Tell me, tell me I'm stupid, like you usually do, right? I didn't want to fail like the usual mo. I thought it was a fantastic game. There is, there is, you had said earlier that is a no luck, but you know, there's the deck you're drawing. There's off. minimal luck. There's yeah. minimal luck. You're drawing off this deck that has a whole bunch of special abilities, which will change every game. So that's very interesting. So 
there is a little bit of maybe you won't get the useful. There was definitely a useful card in the game that we played. Well, there was a utility card. There was a scoring card. There were a couple of other building cards. Yeah. It was a fair variety. It was a fair variety, but one, you know, stood out and, you know, you, so a lot of people might have been getting that and some others might not have. But overall, I thought it was a great game. You definitely have to stress that you can use other people's infrastructures because it might not be uh, evident or you might not be aware of it at the beginning or just, you know, because most games you get to use your own buildings and you don't get to use other people's stuff. It's no sharing. You know, this is mine. No touchy. This is yours. But in this game... You can use everybody's stuff. It's just that they're going to get a bonus. And if you use your own, then you get the bonus as well. So I thought that was very interesting. And the fact that the closer you get to the core of the sun, the more powerful actions you're going to get. And then you, you know, you're building up this momentum of your, you know, your, uh, arc, your arc. So your people can escape as you sacrifice the, the, the few in order so that the many may survive. what do you think of soul? There's a lot that I really, really like about Soul Last Days of a Star. First thing that I want to mention right off the bat is that it's one of the most visually stunning games that's well, that's still incredibly usable. Oftentimes you get these very stark, uh, very specific visual graphic designs, but it doesn't pay off in terms of usability. But Soul Last Days of a Star, I can't remember the last time I saw a game that was this beautiful, this unique looking. And also incredibly functional in terms of graphic design. It was very, very well done. And the, the pieces are marvelous and very easily distinguished. Anyhow, I, I agree with you. I think the salient aspect that really stood out to me was the necessity of using opponents' infrastructure in an opportune way. And our first playing, and we definitely want to play again, was very evocative of this in that there was one player who was building very successfully, building aggressively a very strong arc, uh, infrastructure. I was not, and I was mostly using his infrastructure, but I was using it in such a way that he wasn't able to capitalize on. And so I was winning for, for the middle part of the game. But then there was this sort of switch that got flicked and said, it's like, okay, wait, I have to stop him from being so parasitic off of my great buildings. And then he started, you know, making the necessary trade-offs to stop building so aggressively and instead being able to better accommodate and, and piggyback off of what I was doing in turn. And so there's a lovely little push and pull and he ended up winning by quite some margin and he deserved it. He, he outplayed me. And it was very satisfying. Now, there are a couple of minor rule trip-ops about when a Sundiver, which is your basic unit of ship, is sacrificed versus vaporized versus recalled. And so that requires a little bit of reminding over and over uh, because even though the game has good player aids, you still have to internalize what those different things mean. It doesn't help that one of the special power cards we used actually uses vaporized and sacrificed the same time which is not they're not the same and so it was bad that they used both of them so the theme is great looks marvelous has got some interesting stuff sometimes games like this they don't you know really sell uh the unique hook because i could easily imagine if this had been a, a slightly less well done design there would be no reason why you'd have to go and use other people's buildings but the reason why in Saul last days of a star you have actually go and use other people's buildings all the time is because there's this element of your mothership which is where all your actions originate from is very slowly orbiting the sun and you have no control over its orbit it just proceeds one space along every time you take a turn. You can't do it faster, you can't do it slower. And so as a result, the building that you dropped in turn three is on the other side of the sun by turn 10. And so you're not in as good a position to use it. Meanwhile, your opponent just shows up and look, there's all these buildings left behind. And as a result, you give this this lovely element of forced co-opetition, basically, which a lot of other games try to do but don't really sell. And Saw Last Days of Star does it very simply and very well. This was recommended by a couple of our listeners, actually, that we go track down a copy. A slave to the public that I am, I went and did so. And I'm very glad I did. 
So we're going to be trying out some of the other special cards. I, I've tried a couple solo scenarios, and to be frank, they were okay as learning experiences, but they were way too easy. And they didn't have this element of forced co-opetition. There wasn't this element of my using other people's buildings and other people using my buildings. So it felt like half a game in comparison. So I'm probably not going to do that again. But I am looking forward to more multiplayer experiences and uh, seeing what the other special powers have to offer and how it changes up the formula. Nice. And that was Soul, Last Days of a Star. Walker, last week I got to do something I've been wanting to do for years. Well, okay, it hasn't been years, but it feels like it's been years. Wow, you got your shower fixed. Congratulations. That is unfair and hurtful. <laughs> my hygiene is beyond reproach. Now, my style, on the other hand... That was, that was lowbrow. I'm yeah. sorry, Mark. <clears throat> so ever since we started this podcast, I think, I've been wanting to try Bunny Kingdom. Because of your fiery hatred for Bunny Kingdom, it is probably... Of the games that we've talked about on the podcast, I'd venture to say if it's not your least favorite game, it's definitely the bottom five. I think it's just most most disappointing because I don't, maybe you're about to say the same thing I'm about to say. I have no idea. Is that the actual, while you're playing the game is great. I really love the math that you have to do in order to, to manipulate the board and get your pieces out. And then it's just all this hidden victory points at the end that just, that kills the fun that I had during the game. This is what I remember. Right. So to a certain extent... Knowing your experiences of the game prepped me for a certain set of expectations. And the rules explainer did the same thing, possibly, again, as a response to your vociferous criticism. He said, look, a lot of your points are going to come at the end. Just accept that and understand that. But here's how you score points during the game. And there was a, the balance was about 50-50, I'd say, uh, in terms of points scored during the game and points scored at the end, roughly. Uh, the winner of the game scored more points during the game than they did during the end, so for what for what that's worth. So Bunny Kingdom is a drafting game by Richard Garfield that has this grid where you just put bunnies out. And the bunnies are adorable. And the little plastic pizzas are marvelous. Although, I will say, this this is actually a non, non-trivial objection. You can harvest carrots, and carrots are also victory points, but they're golden carrots. That's not terribly cool. There were a couple of moments of genuine ambiguity where we were looking over cards and saying, wait, which carrots are these again? Oh, the, the uh, uh, fine, whatever. I get it. Bunnies love carrots. That makes perfect sense. But anyhow, setting all that aside, there, w- there was definitely some elements of Richard Garfield nonsense. And Richard Garfield fundamentally is one of those guys who loves Cosmic Encounter and loves games with effects like Cosmic Encounter. And I love Cosmic Encounter too. But Cosmic Encounter type style effects belong in Cosmic Encounter. They don't belong in other kinds of games. And this is one one card in particular in Buddy Kingdom, which is at the end of the game, score 10 points if you're in second place. This is some nonsense. It's not. (laughs) And 10 points is a lot. The person explaining the game who's played a number of times says, in his experience, most of the time the game is decided by that card. So that's not cool. Right off the top, that's not terribly cool. And I will say this with respect to your concerns. I enjoyed the game far more than you did. I thought it was fine. I thought it was a a, a cute and pleasant diversion. But it was once again a drafting game where the drafting didn't have any teeth. It was uh, drafting as a lazy way to distribute resources around the table. And any other form of... It could have been a face-up display, and we could have taken them from a tableau, like you would do in an Alan Moon game. We could have auctioned these cards off, but... I mean, again, these would have been different games, but I'm saying there was nothing that really sort of leveraged the drafting element, precisely because, as you object to, all these endgame scoring cards go face down in front of you. I have no idea what my partner, what, what the person to my left or my right is going for. All I know is that they've got 10 face down cards, and something weird's going to happen. If I knew what they were, 
then I might have some ability to take a card to deny it from them. And so the, the opportunity for genuine player interaction in the form of the draft itself, vanishingly rare. And I'm sick to death of games like that, of just using drafting as a lazy way, because we've seen what good drafting games look like. And you can get a lot of mileage out of drafting if you do it properly. And I, I don't think that, that Bunny Kingdom did. So as a, a, a board game, as the board play, it was fine. It was nice. And, you know, the endgame scoring was whatever. You're trying to meet various goals that none of your opponents know anything about. That was okay. I wish the drafting had been a little bit better. Like, if, if somebody could could get the quality drafting you get out of a game like Fairy Tale and marry it to a relatively simple board position game, I think that we'd have a serious contender for, you know, one of our favorite games. But I haven't seen that yet. Usually the drafting... I, I don't even like the drafting very much in Blood Rage. There's a tiny little bit of... Like, the drafting Drafting in Blood Rage is still better than the drafting in Bunny Kingdom because you know what your what your opponents have. You can say, okay, this person's already got a whole bunch of cards for dead people. I'm not going to hand them more, uh, so I'll hold on to these or, or what have you. So uh, I was actually a little bit disappointed in that I didn't have a stronger reaction. I was hoping I would love the game or, or loathe it like you did, but I thought it was pretty cute. So I, I was able to satisfy my curiosity, curiosity, if nothing else, and that was my experience with Bunny Kingdom. I got to play a game called Rangers of Shadowdeep, which is a tabletop miniature system by Joseph McCullough, who also did Frostgrave, which is a relatively popular campaign-based miniatures game about wizards. I'm not super into wizards, and I'm kind of done with competitive campaign games, and so Frostgrave, I've got a copy of the rules, and I, I've, uh, I've you know, built a couple sample warbands and such, but I've never really played. But Rangers of Shadowdeep is basically Frostgrave, but co-op. And with less of an emphasis on wizards. It is a soloable or pure co-op tabletop miniatures game. And that caused me to immediately become sold. And I played the first mission of the first scenario. And I thought it was great. Not earth shattering by any means. The AI is bone stupid. It is a three step process. Is the thing in combat? Well, then it fights. If not, it goes towards the nearest figure. If it can't see any other figure, it moves to a specified point in the scenario. And that's it. Them's the AI rules. I have explained to you the AI rules. But it was it was fine because there was enough uh, texture and narrative in the way the events work, in the way you're setting up the scenarios. The scenarios, uh, scenario design from the one that I've played and the ones that I've looked at are, are reasonably good in terms of giving you enough to fight over so it's not just some massive scrum or it's not just some sort of game of whack-a-mole. And the rangers have a fair amount of customization that you can introduce. The people that you hire can be customized to a limited extent. And I just have to say... It made me realize how spoiled I've become in terms of miniatures rule sets and, uh, to a lesser extent, role-playing game systems. I remember back what it was like 15, 20 years ago when if you wanted stat cards, you had to buy models. If you wanted to do tabletop role-playing, there was only a small number of rule systems and only a small even number of kinds of stories that you were expected to be able to tell. Like Gary Gygax, over the course of his life, made a whole bunch of different role-playing rule sets, but they were all fundamentally of a, of a type. I, and I played Dangerous Journeys, I played Legendary Adventures, I played... Anyway, but now, if you're a role-player, if you're a tabletop miniatures gamer, if you have a collected bunch of stuff, you can tell whatever kind of story you want and play whatever kind of game you want. And usually with some sort of open sourced rule set that is not going to tie you to a product line. And this is especially true in miniatures gaming. We've talked about Gaslands. Gaslands like, hey, get some Hot Wheels cars. There you go. You now have a miniatures force. Rangers of Shadowdeep and games like Frostgrave as well, even sometimes even more mainstream uh, games like Infinity are very permissive in terms of, look, if it's just use whatever you have. Go forth and, and, and do no wrong. And the notion of paying for stat cards is just so alien for me now. It used to be taken for granted in a lot of, uh, in a lot of miniatures games, but now you don't have to do that. 
so Rangers of Shadowdeep, all you need to do is buy the book. You can get the PDF, and you're good to go. Set up whatever terrain you have. There's a, a Facebook group with lots of creative suggestions about how to how to manage things. And uh, just with my HeroScape collection, I had more than enough miniatures to use for everybody with minimal proxying. It's like, yeah, I don't have giant rats, so instead I use Martin Nagrubs. Like, whatever. They're, they're small little nasty things with big teeth. It works. And I had a great time. We're going to be playing more Adventures of the Campaign, letting our Rangers level up, because, again, as I said with just one, when it's a co-op game, balance is less of a problem. And I've played uh, mostly more time, but I've played competitive league-based miniatures games where there's a campaign element. They go off. They tend to go off the rails real quick, and I don't know that Frostgrave does that. Maybe it doesn't, but I'm just not particularly interested in finding out, especially since you tend to need lots more people in order to make the game interesting. Like, if you're just going to be playing the same person over and over and over again, the power, the power imbalances start to get old. But Rangers of Shadowdeep is just wonderful for, for the kind of gaming that I'm looking for now, sort of pick up mini, minis gaming that's very, very flexible, that only other need, that needs one or zero other people. So I'm very enthusiastic about Rangers of Shadowdeep, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of what it has to offer. And uh, Joseph McCulloch is definitely a creative guy with lots of good ideas. So that was my experience with that. And that is the games we played last week. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. So first up, minor announcement, Madara now has its second Kickstarter up. This is this is the pattern of Kickstarters now, you know. You have a campaign, then there's some number of years in development, and Madara it was, it was close to three. You launch it, and then very, very quickly thereafter, a couple months probably, you then launch the expansion Kickstarter. And you got to strike while the iron's hot. I have a full copy of Madara because I pledged for it back when I was young and stupid. Haven't tried it yet because, as I've co- as we've commented, even in the context of our Hellboy review, Hellboy we really, really like and does some clever things, but even then we're so fatigued with the genre. So Madara is a co-op fantasy crawl campaign system, you know, one, one more attempt at the Gloomhaven or Kingdom Death Monster thing. And uh, they've got a lot of content in that box, and now they say they've got two more cycles good to go. It was funded in, I think, three seconds or something. So there's definitely a lot of demand and a lot of people who wish they'd gotten in on the, the ground floor of the Madara experience. I don't know if I have any enthusiasm for even trying the base game. If if you want to hear about Madara and you want to hear our take on it, by all means, let us know, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to get it, off, get it onto the table. But, uh, yeah, so more Madara. Mark, there's a game called Catan. Did you know that? I'm vaguely familiar with it. And then they brought out an edition called Starfares of Catan. Yes. And now they're reprinting it. How exciting is that? I'm actually enthusiastic. I know I'm being. I'm being okay. Serious. <laughs> I couldn't tell because as soon as I saw it, I knew you'd be excited. Yes. I'm excited. We played it fairly recently. We still both enjoy it. it. Has very unique ways they change Catan, and it should be interesting. I'm hoping that Claus Tuber is involved in the tweaks because they plan on making the map variable. Because one of the weird things about Starfares of Catan is that it has a fixed map, unlike most of the other Catan games. And the new version is going to have a variable map. They're going to be redoing the plastic pieces, which is probably for the best. Because the plastic pieces in the original were very prone to breakage. Mine are all intact, but, you know, you still have to be very, very careful and use the supplementary rings that Mayfair sent out back in the early aughts to fix things. Yeah, it's been out of print for almost 20 years now. And I'm certainly not a subscriber to the maxim that every good game that is out of print will get reprinted. I don't believe that that's true at all. But I'm glad that uh, Catan Starfarers... It's now going to be called Catan Starfarers, not Starfarers of Catan, because it's not the Settlers of Catan anymore. It's just Catan. It's like Prince or Madonna. You only need the one the one word. It's that cool. Yeah, but I'm looking forward to seeing the new components because the you know the Starfarers of Catan has very stunning and striking components that are very fun to manipulate and, and, and do things with. So I hope they maintain that aspect, and I'm very curious to see how they're going to do the variable vo- board. 
Final note that I took note of, there was this article that's been making the rounds. It was posted on Reddit and a number of people commented on Borg Geek. I don't know if you saw this, Walker. The article in Bloomberg News called, a Bloomberg article called, The Board Gaming Craze Comes With $2,700 Table. Have you seen this? No. Oh, man. This is a classic example, and this happens all the time in media. Science reporting, academic reporting, hobby reporting, somebody who doesn't know anything about the topic they're reporting, which is sometimes necessarily the case. Like, reporters can't be experts on everything. And sometimes you have a beat that involves lots of different things coming in and just misrepresenting and not understanding what's going on. So basically, (laughs) this is an article ostensibly about the economics of board game accessories. You know, talking about people like Broken Token. Other people who offer component upgrades, talking about people who make custom tables. We know some people in the business. It just had a lot of false comparisons and a lot of sort of weird othering in the article that didn't that didn't make any sense. For example, in the article it talked about how, well, you could get a copy of Monopoly for $15, but to play a Rising Sun right, you might have to pay $4,500. Like, wait, what? Because it's like, well, this is how much you pay for chairs, and this is how much you pay for the table, and this is how much you pay for the broken token insert. And it's like, wait, 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 dude, slow down. If you're going to play Monopoly, you also need chairs and a table and all these other things. <laughs> and let me tell you, I've played Rising Sun on folding chairs on a, on, on a, a bad card table that you could pay 15 bucks for at a Goodwill somewhere. So slow your roll. And uh, also for what it's worth, look, we're not, we're not here to move custom tables, but furniture is expensive. And if you're going to get a good dining room table, if it's a good gaming dining room table, sometimes the additional price in that to have the extra little bells and whistles is negligible sometimes, depending on what you decide to buy. So it was just a bizarre article that seemed way out of step. I half expected them next to attribute, you know, and then you have to hire prostitutes to play the game with you at $100 an hour, and then you need to pay the heating bill, and then you need a mortgage on your house. Because you have to play it in a house. And then you need to worry about the crystal glassware that you serve the beverages with. And then you need the wine. It's like, come on, slow down. To play Rising Sun, what you need is a flat surface, some friends, and 100 bucks to buy the game. Like, that's what you need. Sure, $100 for a game could be expensive, but anyhow. So this was a strange article. And this is just an example of what it is to be a niche hobby where the, whenever the mainstream ta- deigns to pass its yeah, mail, baleful gaze in. over us. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that was a that was the Bloomberg article called "This Board Gaming Craze Comes with Twenty Seven Hundred Dollar Tables," and it was at least good for a laugh. The final the final note I'll, I'll I'll point out just as an indication of how little they understood what they were talking about. They talked about the game Munchkin from Steve's Action Games, and they attributed the title to the fact that the people the heroes that you're playing as are diminutive. It's like no, Munchkin's an inside joke about a particular role playing trope. It's a game about role playing tropes. Don't guess what the title comes from, because nobody at Steve Jackson, I guarantee you this, nobody at Steve Jackson told told the reporter, this is why it's called Munchkin. The person should have asked or done some research. It's like, no, this is, I'm sure this is why the game is called Munchkin, so... Anyway, this, anyway. Will, this, will get me, this will get me clicks, Mark. That's, that's <laughs> exactly what they thought. Uh, My last bit of news is just Simon's next Kickstarter coming out. It's called, oh my lord. This is, do your best. This will get some emails, I'm sure. Trudveg by Simon. Isn't there an N in there? Isn't it Trudvang? Trudvang. I don't, I, I don't know how it's pronounced, but isn't there an N? There is V-A-N-G. Okay. Turdvang. No. No. Vangie. Miss Vangie. No, no. Something else. Trudvang. Trudvangie? Yes. No. By Simon. It's the newest Kickstarter. It's going to be a storytelling board game. So that's interesting. That's why I put it in here. I'm, I'm interested to see what they mean by a storytelling board game and see what they do with it. Because Simon usually does good work. I'm sure there's going to be some sort of dice pooling. <laughs> and I'm sure they'll find some way 
to hype up Eric Lang's involvement in the project That's as much right. as possible. It's by Eric Lang, and there'll be dice pools. It'll be great. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature topic, which is second chances. Mark, I just have a list of things that would give you reasons to give games second chances. For once, Walker, we have prepared in exactly the same way. All right. Can we start with the niche reason that applies to us and not to other people? Sure. Because we're reviewers and we have to? <laughs> because we're reviewers and we have to. Which... There are there are tons of games that I'm sure both of us would be would have been more than happy to even call in the middle sometimes. Be like, yeah, the, we, we, we've seen enough. Yes. Uh, but we, you know, that would be irresponsible of us to talk about things in that context. So, you know, we try, we trudge on through multiple plays, never learning anything new. <laughs> Anyhow, but fortunately, that does not apply to most people. Fortunately. Because, yes, because there are, not that, not that, because even these games that we find painful, this is the thing, is that some someone might love it. People that don't play a lot of games, they might take these games that we're knocking all the time, and they bring it into the group, and they love it, and they play it, and this game that we knocked gets a, gets a second chance or a home. So you never know, but still... It is an awful game, and they should be ashamed. That well, no, we don't. It. We don't try it again because we know that there are some other. People no, who no, love no. It. This has nothing to do. with We that. try it I'm again just, because we have to. I'm just saying that there's. Okay. We're in. We have. Anyway, you're talking about wrong people. Why should I care about wrong people? This is true. Okay. All right. If a game gets a new expansion, right? If a game comes out, it gets a new expansion, a new look, a new way to play it. Even though it might have been terrible, it might get some new buzz. Hey, well, this expansion fixes all the problems, so we'll give it a second chance. It's truly rare that I've found an expansion that really changes my mind on a base game. Now, sometimes it's, it's just that element that will really make it truly shine. Like uh, Galaxy Trucker, for example, its first expansion, I think, really pushes the quality up considerably. And the same is true of lots of other games. But the only time that I can really remember... So, so there was the early days of Fantasy Flight where the first expansion was necessary to fix a broken game, right? I'm talking about first edition Game of Thrones. I'm talking about the original Warcraft board game. You know, without the base expansion, the games were broken. But in the context of Game of Thrones, I actually think that the expansion, Storm of Swords, to the first edition Game of Thrones, is actually my preferred way to play. Because it changes things considerably. It completely changes the victory conditions and makes it a four-player game rather than a six-player game. And it's my preferred uh, Game of Thrones experience. Not, not, and that's not saying much. I, I, I still don't love it at that configuration. But yeah, sometimes expansions can really change things up and make you want to change it. Now, most of the time, it's just more of the same. But, you know, sometimes that's fine. If you get a rule wrong... Say you've got some rules. Never wrong. happens. Never, I know. Never happens. To us, never happens to me. Right? Because you know we're we're professionals. Yeah, I, I have this listed too. So yeah. So yeah. if you've played it and maybe you've read almost immediately that the rule, or maybe you even during the game, or realized, maybe maybe you have a listener very politely point out, yes, in your forum that you are completely full of crap. These are all things that could happen. I have to say to the kind people that have corrected me. I have never been so kindly corrected on such an egregious mistake. Never in my life. Usually it's usually what happens when I say I don't like a game, it's all the obnoxious people saying, well, you probably weren't playing correctly because it sounds like you got this rule wrong. And it's like, no, 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 we played it correctly, and it's still bad. This is the time where I completely stepped in it, and people are really nice. It was strange. Anyhow, let's move on. <laughs> rules wrong, yeah. All right. If in a, in a waking dream or nightmare, depending on how bad the game is, you think of a new strategy and you say, okay, well, th with this new strategy, maybe I'll enjoy the game or maybe it'll completely change the game state so you give it another try. Sometimes people come in with the wrong expectations. 
And actually, I think Bunny Kingdom is a good example of this. I genuinely, I, I don't think you'll ever like the game, but had you come in expecting most of the most of the scoring to come from the end game, you probably wouldn't have reacted as violently as you did. It was, I get the sense that it was a sense of surprise and shock. And I see this sometimes in, in other cases, like uh, people actually who played Saul last days of a star, they weren't expecting to capitalize on other people's infrastructure quite so much. I remember also uh, there's a there's a player in our group who really hated his experience of Root because when I explained the game and set it all up, he looked at the cards and he noticed that all the cards had a crafting element. And so he thought that most of the game was about crafting. And so when he wasn't able to craft very much, he got very frustrated. And yeah, sometimes that's the perfect case where you need to give it a second chance because you need to change your strategy, conceptualize how the game works differently, or maybe you just got the wrong impression about how to do well or how the game functioned. Yeah, much like same thing with Scythe, right? You your first game, you see all these giant mechs, you might feel it's going to be this crazy combat mech, you know, fire missiles destroying villages, and then you know your first play, it is definitely not that. And relatedly, when we talked a, a few weeks ago about the right way to play, if you try the game in a configuration that is not ideal for you, you might be able to mix it up a bit. So this is true of a couple of games like uh, Argent the Consortium. I tried again because people said, no, 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 you used the wrong set of rooms. You need to have a different set of boards to really play it properly. I always play Merchant of Venus, which is another classic Avalon Hill game with the Quick Start variant that was published in the general, and that's my preferred way. And uh, I almost didn't play the Resistance a second time. Resistance is one of my favorite games, but I almost gave it up after the first play because we played with the Plot Thickens cards, which in my experience and the experience of my group suck the joy out of the game entirely and remove all the tension. And so, you know, sometimes you really need to figure, well, maybe we should try it with or without this module and see what happens. Might be the player count might be off. You Just might be, so. Might be do- different player counts maybe a new edition of the game comes out maybe they've changed the whole thing up new components maybe you want to give it a second try maybe it's a game that has scenarios maybe you just did the first one and the scenario is quite wrong and you you know advance to the you know it gets better as you go along i don't understand now maybe i don't understand a whole bunch about game marketing you often opine about game marketing and i have to shrug and say i just don't know much about it but i'm sick to death of People saying, I tried scenario one, and it was boring and far too easy and weird. And then a whole bunch of people say, no, no, no the game only really kicks in around scenario six. It's like, what? In, the, in a market as saturated as ours, you'd figure that, especially if you're marketing your hobbyists, like people aren't wandering into Toys R Us and picking up Dawn of the Peacemakers as an example. Like That's just not happening. When you know that you're going through hobbyist channels, you have to give your, your audience at least a certain level of faith that they're going to be able to parse a reasonable degree of complexity and handle a certain degree of variability. So I, I, I'm, I agree. Sometimes you have to go to the later scenarios because sometimes the, the, the intro ones are deliberately designed to be dull, which boggles the imagination. Crazy, I know. Different players, they, you sort of mix it up with different players. Maybe you played with a bunch of war gamers or you played with a bunch of you know, Euro gamers and they just didn't like that type of game. Maybe with a different set of players... Or maybe uh, the players in your group have changed. Maybe, you know, uh, the, your current gaming group didn't like the game and now you've got, you know, s- you know, four new people, try it out with them, maybe they'll like it instead. Or maybe the people around the table were having a bad day or in a bad mood. Or sometimes you try a game for the first time with people it turns out you don't like. These are also good instances in which a second look is often warranted. And then maybe you're just your tastes have changed. Maybe it's an older game. It's been sitting on your shelf a while. And now you've, you know, switched into heavy Euros and you say, oh, well, what's this Hansa Teutonica that I hated when I first bought it, you know, 10 years ago? And then, <laughs> lo and behold, you actually have the greatest game ever made. <laughs> this actually happened to me within The Shadow of the Emperor. I don't know why, but when I first tried the Shadow in The Shadow of the Emperor, 
I it really didn't click with me. And I, I don't even know why, because it's not like my tastes have changed radically. I still really like medium weight area majority games with some opportunities for politicking. But coming back to it a few years later, it really sang and I really understood what all the fuss was about. So absolutely. Time can really change your perspective. Sometimes I think, uh, on a related note, you really have to give a game a second chance when it does something that's really genre-defying. If it's really set out and does something truly different and unique, especially in an overpopulated genre, sometimes it takes a second or third play to really appreciate what's going on. I mean, I talked about Upfront. Upfront is definitely an example. It's so different from almost every other war game. Uh, you kind of have to give it a second try to really let its, its, its mechanisms sink through. A lot of people have bad first reactions to games like uh, Tigers and Euphrates or Imperial, precisely because they're so similar to other games where you have your own territory, and then when their own territory is stolen from them right out from under them, they might have a bad reaction. So you really have to, you know, come at it again and, and accept that. Uh, and then there are games that are just weird, like uh, Cosmic Encounter or Senji. You know, games that are very, you know, you might think, oh, this is another conflict game. No, 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 they're, they're really different, and they're doing things very differently. And you have to really, sometimes that second play is necessary to really get the tempo of what's going on, for lack of a better term. And yeah, lots of people don't like Cosmic Encounter, lots of people don't like Senji, but sometimes they, they dislike it simply because it subverted their expectations so, so hard. My last one would be, just because I'm slave to the hotness of BGG, to a degree, right? So if I've tri- played a game and I dislike it or don't don't enjoy it, yet it, you know it's lingering on the hotness list, I want to give it another try. I want to see if it's just the hype as per usual, <laughs> or is there something I missed? So for me, the the best time to give a game a second look is when the systems are really dense or opaque. Sometimes it's not even a question of complexity; it's a question of op- opacity. So I'm talking specifically about games like the Splatter games. You know, sometimes Splatter games have a relatively simple rule set compared to how complicated things are. Like, you can completely internalize the rule set to Antiquity or to Food Chain Magnate and end up either buried in graves or never selling anything, uh, case depending. Uh, I'm now imagining a game of Food Chain Magnate where you'd be buried in graves or a game of Antiquity where you're not able to sell any pizza. Buried in gravy. There you go. That's it. The, the expansion to connect them to, to connect the two games, buried in gravy, antiquity, antiquity magnate. I love it. I can't wait. This is this is going to be great. Well, we already inspired the ketchup mechanism. They they it's, did that immediately after they heard about us talking about ketchup mechanism. So. And this is also true of all of Cole Worley's games. Because I, I feel that, you know, I like a lot of what Cole Worley has done, but every game I've played of his that I've enjoyed, I haven't really fully enjoyed it on the first play, the possible exception of Root. Root, I think, is probably one of his most accessible games. But I really think that some designers, like Cole Worley, to a lesser extent, people like Phil Eklund, sometimes even Martin Wallace, they design games that are not immediately transparent on a first play, even if the rule sets are relatively simple. Same thing with the, the Splatter crew. And I'm really glad that I came back to... Games like John Company and John Company is not, it's still not a top tier design, I don't think, but you know, slowly evaluating how to pull the levers to get where you want to go. Pax Renaissance is probably one of my biggest turnabouts in, in recent history. I hated the game the first couple times I played it, but I kept going back to it. But in the case of Pax Ren, I went back to it because of probably one of my biggest reasons, one of, one of the automatic things that will get me to give a game a second try, which is if someone I respect is involved and vouches for it. And this is either a designer or a critic. And in the case of games like Pax Renaissance, there were a number of people who I very, very much trust who don't like a lot of other Phil Eklund games that, no, 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 this is the one. This is, this is the game that finally manages to emerge past the Eklund nonsense and randomness and chaos to actually get a good strategic experience. And I'm glad that I listened to them. 
The, uh, there are some examples, though, of that process not working out. So I, I've got a list of, uh, of, of shame here of things that I've given multiple second looks to, and I still haven't been able to really uh, appreciate them. And this is primarily uh, in the case of this is actually a case of, of a trusted designer and trusted critics coming together, and I'm still not able to feel it. And that's Taj Mahal and Modern Art, two Knizia classics that I just can't. It's just, it's just I, I'm actually I'm probably going to give Modern Art another try. I'm going to probably again track down a copy and give it give it one another try because it's been a few years, and you're right, the passage of time can sometimes help. But I've done this several times with Taj Mahal. I've done this several times with Modern Art. I just it just doesn't get there. And I love the designer and I love the people who love these games, but just can't do it. Rising Sun is another game I gave a lot of chances to, and it didn't really come together at the end of the day. But, I mean, then again, there are some classics that I've, I've gone back to, uh, again, because of I wanted to get past the opaque systems and people I trusted. Civilization is a classic example of that. I'm talking about the Francis Tresham Civilization, of course. Final example of uh, wanting to, uh, of, of disappointments I've had is often, well, let's play it again because maybe we're going to get the playing time down. Right, you play a game for the first time and you figure, oh well, that was that was kind of cool, but I don't think it's three hours good. It's maybe two hours good, and that's definitely the case of uh, Wallenstein, Shogun, and Immortals. One of them wants so badly to like them. I think there's like ninety to one hundred twenty minutes of great game in a game of that, but usually goes to three hours. So I've given them so many chances and gone back and back and back, hoping that the playing time is going to go down. Same is true of Argent the Consortium, for what it's worth. I would, true. You know, if Argent the Consortium could get down to two hours, I'd be all over that. You mean setup time or play time? <laughs> well, because Argent, again, is, uh, you know, on top of the fact that it's mechanically clever and does a number of other things, it does a theme that nobody else does. It's about academic politicking. Yes. I was in academia. I love that stuff. I remember. I, I love playing it. It was fun. Like, I tried it several times, and the last time we played it, I actually remember enjoying playing it. Another thing I, I thought of while you were talking, which was for quite a while, and I almost fell asleep, was if there's different asymmetrical powers, right? Say... You know, you want to try a different build somehow, you know, a different uh, faction or a different build about, you know, if it's a hero, different, you know, equipment set or whatever. You know, so that's something like that. You say, you know, maybe that is going to uh, make the game more fun. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, some, rarely does it elevate a mediocre game to, to, to top tier. But sometimes, though, there's a related phenomenon, which is sometimes, uh, which is kind of going back to the expansion discussion, sometimes when you add more factions into the mix or just more material. For example, HeroScape is a brilliant experience but you probably want more than what's in the base game. You know, once you start adding in more stuff, you get more or less a linear uh, in- increase okay, in no, stop, there. Stop, stop, Okay. I'm not going to go on about Hero Escape for another hour. Sorry. Enough. Sorry. But the same is true of Cthulhu Wars. I think a couple of extra faction expansions give you a lot more mileage out of Cthulhu Wars. And sometimes it's just a question of... Sometimes it's hard in the outset knowing whether the expansion or the extra faction or whatever is going to change the formula enough to really add more uh, quality, or whether it's just stuff for stuff's sake, which is which which is unfortunate. But exactly the final thing I've got here under the aegis of uh, how you know giving something a second chance, which is if you think you didn't enjoy the game because you were wrestling too much with the system, and you think coming back to it you'll be able to do things more smoothly. And here I'm not necessarily talking just about rules; I'm talking about components as well. And you know. The game that I can't mention anymore is very much true of that. If you can get the setup time down a little bit with the great plastic pieces that are so marvelous and make such great sounds and are 
so attractive. Uh, but th- that was definitely true. My experience of another turnaround I did recently, which was Thunderbolt Apache Leader. First couple of times I played it, I really didn't enjoy it, but that's because I wasn't organizing things properly. Thunderbolt Apache Leader has chits coming out of the ears for everything. Damage checks and weapons checks and all manner of other things. And if you don't have things organized carefully, it's going to be a tedious experience. So That could be another thing. If you're the rules explainer and your head's always in the book and you're always explaining rules and you're not having fun playing the game, and you might think it's you know the game's fault, but it's really just because you're too busy you know, hand-holding people through the game. I know you're not, you've never felt that way before. I'm no, sure. never. But so, so let me explain it to you, Mark. It's, it's brutal, <laughs> just brutal. So, you know, that would be another reason to, you know, you'd want to give the game another try. So finally, I'd just like to close out with one game system. Sometimes it, it's a game system, right? You want to try the next game in the system. This is particularly true of war games where you think this might be the, the the theater or the historical period or this designer's take on it that really might make it shine. And uh, I've commented in the past, and I'm done with coin games. The counterinsurgency games, I've tried three games now of the system. Several uh, of those games i played multiple times, and it's just not worth it. I, I kept hoping that maybe if a non-Vocal Runke designed a coin, that that might be it. But uh, basically, I'm sick to death of five-plus-hour games that really want to be El Grande but aren't even as good as El Grande and don't do, don't do justice to the historical period and are so opaque and so weird just for the sake of being opaque and weird. So, un- unfortunately, the coin games go under the aegis of, uh, under the category of too many chances. So to sum up, there, there are lots of games I'm really, really glad that I gave a second chance to and that I've been very wrong about on the first first glance. So the, the ones I mentioned were, you know, Pax Renaissance, The Shadow of the Emperor, Thunderbolt, Apache Leader, a couple Splatter games. I, I wasn't super big on Antiquity the first time I played it, but I'm glad I stuck with it because Splatter games generally were worth it. And, you know, even though uh, games like the coin games and Taj Mahal and Rising Sun didn't really start to work the way I hoped they would upon coming back to second chances, I'm glad I gave them the chance at least to fall flat on their face and fail for me. Because now I can feel, you know, perfectly confident in, in, in asserting that no good person should ever play them. Okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> from us? Never. <laughs> Certainly never from me. So thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's G-A-O-S-T-R-O-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our board game guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>